My name is Kat Corchado. I am a fellow Air Force veteran and host of the podcast, Sisters in Service. This podcast is where I found my passion for helping other veterans after my transition from the military over 22 years ago. My mission is to help veterans avoid the black hole known as transition, to help women veterans find their voice and discover their strengths as they enter civilian life. There's a new episode every Tuesday. I hope that you'll listen, you'll like, you'll share, you'll comment, and let me know what you'd like to hear on this podcast. Until then, I hope to see you again soon. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and it's never too late to start your impossible. Welcome to another episode of Sisters in Service. I am, of course, your host, Kat Corchado. And in this episode, I have as my guest, Quinn Galloway Salazar. She is the founder of In Their Honor, LLC. She is conducting an oral history interviews of veterans. So I'm hoping that we'll get to talk about this a little bit more. But guys, she's got so much going on. She's just an amazing woman. We're going to talk about all of this in today's episode. So first of all, Quinn, welcome to Sisters in Service. I'm so happy to have you. Oh, Kat, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's my honor. I find myself saying that a lot. It's my honor to be here um, and to have your your audience listen in. Well, I think what you're doing is even more so, you know, I was like, oh, she's just really awesome because we had talked prior and I swear we must, I should have hit record because we had such an amazing <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and um, then I got her bio and I was like, oh crap, she's just got it going on. So first of all, Quinn is an army veteran. So Quinn, I asked this of all my veterans, did the army pick you or did you pick the army? <laughs> Definitely. I think the right answer would be the army picked me. Oh, do tell. I was was a freshman in college uh, here in Atlanta, Georgia. I attended Morris Brown College. Um, This was 2000. So I'm dating myself. So this was about 2000, 2001 timeframe. And of course, Army recruiters, military recruiters at large are always campusing campuses. Um, and I was told, hey, if you join the Army, you'd get the opportunity to see the world and we'll pay for you to go to school. Does that sound familiar? Because Yes. Wait, I've heard that before. Like, wait, I think that's a part of the script. Um, and so that was April 2001 um, timeframe. And no, that was about March 2001. And I enlisted um, April 2001 into the United States Army Reserve. I was told I can go to school and, and do that part-time. and They'd help pay for my college tuition. And I was like, sign me up. Wow. You were easy. They're like, where's the pay? No, I don't want the spiel. Just where's the paperwork? <laughs> naive 18-year-old thinking that I knew more than what I could even imagine. Um, but if you think of the dates, April 2001, um, and when I signed into when I enlisted here, I was thinking, OK, the last time we had a war was the Gulf War and I was in the third grade. Surely I can do this enlistment and not see a war. A few months later, 9-11 happened. And that, like many, um, I don't see myself any different. 
that changed the entire trajectory of my life. Um, never would have imagined less than a month time. Um, I graduated basic training in August and 9-11 happened. My duffel bag was still packed when 9-11 wow. happened. Um, and like I said, my life was just turned upside down from there. What were you thinking at that point? You know, because I got out in 2000. So 9-11 happened. I was a brand new veteran, so to speak. And I just remember thinking, and my husband's a veteran too. We thought, God, we really want to put the uniform back on. So what were you thinking in your, your young career in the Army? What were you thinking at that point? Honestly, I was thinking, what am I going to tell my parents, right? Um, I sold them a dream as well that I would be safe and nothing was going to happen um, during my term of enlistment. And I'm originally from New York. So my parents were in New York City when 9-11 happened. And so I was, I finished basic in 2001. I finished AIT in 2002. And right after I finished AIT, my unit was being called up to active duty. And, you know, going back to what you said, what was I thinking? I was thinking, okay, what in the world did I do, right? Like, did I make the right decision? I have no idea what this means for my future. I have no idea um, how this is going to impact my family. Um, But I knew that I raised my right hand and I knew that I had an obligation to fulfill. I understood that much. Absolutely. Uh, So I mobilized. Um, I did not deploy. So my unit was called to active duty um, and we were stationed at Fort Bragg and it was our job to help mobilize um, and demobilize service members going to and from the Middle East. Was there any point after your service during your transition? Was it was it easy? Was it hard? Were you did you feel like you had your feet on the ground? You knew where you were going? Because I'm trying to imagine or or give people a sense of the difference, if there is a difference between active duty and reserve in their transition. Once again, I was a reservist called to active duty. So when I came off of active duty, um, not only was I returning back to civilian life, I also had a one year, I also had a daughter in tow. Oh, goodness. Um, yes. So I had a baby while I was mobilized. Um, my transition was extremely challenging. Um, my MOS in the Army was finance. And so I got off of active duty. I was 21 years old. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to land a finance job in corporate America. <laughs> I know how you feel. That's what I thought, too. Not in finance. I was like, woo. I thought there was going to be music and balloons and a band and, and people throwing contracts at me. Yeah. <laughs> Wishful thinking, Pat. Wishful thinking. Um, what I ended up facing... And this was the second, one of the second points that changed my life was I had an interview with a finance company and here I am with a panel of interviewers and me, and we're in this beautiful building in Buckhead. I don't know if you've ever been into Atlanta, but this is a beautiful building. It's a gorgeous area. I mean, let's just face it. Gorgeous. And I'm sitting at this table and I am very... Once again, I just got off of active duty. So I'm very 
just tight. And I'm looking around and their break room, people are riding around on Razor scooters. Razor scooters were the thing back then. Popcorn machines. They had a margarita machine. And I just got off of active duty where I worked in a World War II barrack. (laughs) And so I remember saying- What a contrast. What exactly? What a contrast, right? But the reality was there was such a divide between my understanding of the civilian workforce and the civilian workforce understanding of who I was as a woman. Yes. I remember leaving that interview and I got to my car and I just cried because I did not know how to translate my military experience into what they were asking an applicant to do in that finance role. And they couldn't help me because they didn't understand how to how to take my work in finance and transition it into their organization. But I drove away that day and I said, I don't know how I'm going to make an impact or change that, but one of these days I will. Um, And I held that, right? That was the very first and last civilian-like employer that I ever went to because I realized that I didn't fit into that mold and they didn't know how to accept and embrace and cultivate me into their mind. Absolutely. But I think that when we start out, you know, you've got, you know, the round knobs and the squares, you know, not in square, but, you know, when people go into the military, it's almost like we morph. So the square doesn't fit in the square anymore because it's morphed and the circle doesn't fit in the circle because it's morphed, but you don't know where it fits. I think that a lot of organizations, not so much now, but even back when I transitioned, that they skipped right over your service. It's right there at the top. It's right and at the, the top. Yeah, it's right there. <laughs> and they're like, um, yeah, you don't have a degree. And I was like, do you see how many, do you see that 20 right there? <laughs> Does that hold any water with you whatsoever? And I told someone the other day, I said, I, th- I remember this guy looking like he's 12. I was sitting in the chair going, this guy's 12 years old. What is he doing interviewing me? Right. He I has more experience than he has on this earth. <laughs> so I'm assuming from your bio that you've really got your, your feet on the ground But tell us a little bit, you were the founder of In Their Honor LLC. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, I mentioned that after I left that interview, I said that at some point in my life, I was going to make a difference um, so that a veteran, especially a woman veteran, would never experience what I experienced at that um, employer. No fault of their own. when, When you don't know, you don't know. Right. And we're talking about 2005 to 2006 timeframe, right? I mean, at that time, they didn't know really what to do, right? Right. When they looked at veterans, they thought, if I hire you, what are the chances, one, that you're going to be called back up and we're going to have to find someone to replace you? Or if I hire you, what are the stigmas and the stereotypes that are associated with you having served. And they right? were all negative. There were no positive. They were all they negative. Were no, 
There were no positive. There were no silver linings. So finished a few degrees, but then I got to <laughs> the point where I wanted to get a PhD. And I realized that it was time for me to make that difference that I promised um, women before, women serving with me and women after that I would that I would do. So I decided to go to school and get my PhD in industrial and organizational psychology with the f- really focusing on the um, hiring and the the hire, the recruiting, the hiring, the training and the retention of veterans. So I got to the point where I needed to do my dissertation. And I said, aha, this is where I'm coming back to my women veterans. And I decided to focus my uh, dissertation on women veterans who served um, and what their transitions were like upon um, completing their service in the armed forces and moving into the civilian workforce. So I did a qualitative study, which means I did interviews. I I definitely think that data and numbers are really important, but I think hearing the stories and letting women veterans have their voices heard, that's, that's my jam. So my study was qualitative in nature, and I had eight participants who shared their lived experiences with me from service to the point where they transitioned. And in all of those stories, Kat, I walked away with hearing the good, the bad, and the indifferent. But I walked away and I said, for the ones who talked about military sexual trauma, for the ones who talked about feeling invisible, for the ones who talked about, I served, my husband served, I outranked my husband and my community still doesn't see me. I wondered how those challenges would affect those women veterans through the continuum of their lives all the way to the end of their life. That's a big deal. And so I decided that I was going to get another certification and I became an end of life doula because I really wanted to focus on helping hospice and palliative care organizations understand the complex needs of veterans as they were facing serious illness or facing end of life. So I stood up in their honor, totally thinking that, I was just going to be focused on um, serious illness care and um, end of life care. And it has morphed into oral history. It has morphed into training. It's morphed into beyond my wildest dreams is what it has started to morph into. Um, That's a wonderful thing, though. It is. It, it, It really is. And, you know, earlier this year, well, not earlier this year, because we're at the start of the year, but back in September, right after 9-11, I did a service project at a veterans um, cemetery. And here I am, I'm cleaning these headstones and I'm starting to clean one. And it's a woman veteran. And it says she was the first female paratrooper in Vietnam. And because I'm the millennial that I am, I take a picture of it, but then I the researcher that I am wants to look and find her because surely if she's the first female paratrooper in Vietnam, she's on, I have to be able to find her. And it, it made me sad for the mere fact that was historical. In every that way. Was, that her story should have been preserved. Now, did you find any information even up to this point of us doing this interview? Did you have, did you find anything about her? 
That's sad. No. no. So I carry her with me, right? I carry her with me because there are many, so many like her where we don't know their stories. We don't know. Yes, we do hear about some of the women who have served and and just their great accomplishments, but we also know that there are roughly 3 million women veterans currently living. Yes. And a good proportion of them, we don't know their stories. No, we don't. And each one of their stories matters. It matters to them. It matters to their family. It matters to their friends, their community. It matters to the rest of us too. Absolutely. So in their honor is, is morphing into this being of an organization that is um, affording those voices to be preserved. I love that. That is so different and so unique that I want in. What do I, what do I have to do? Do I have to get voted in? (laughs) You, want, you know what? Let me, I'm going to say this. See, when you tell Quinn that you want in, if there's a board that's right here on the other side of me, you are in. Um, I have partnered with, uh, there's an organization called Uniting Us, and they're doing some work with the Library of Congress. Mm. And the goal is to get, um, I want to say, I want to say up to 300 interviews conducted between now and the end of 2022 into the Library of Congress. Um, And so I've been tasked with creating a training to train nonprofits that are willing to to join into this partnership um, and, and get some folks, some other women veterans trained up on how to interview their fellow women veterans. Yes. We're making history as we're learning and sharing history. Mm. And that's so big to be able to honor women that have served alongside us and before us so that our future generation can go back and hear those stories. Like, that's my wildest that I'm living cat. I'm living my wildest dream. Oh, that's what everybody wants to do is live that. But that's just an amazing bio of what you're what you're doing, what you've done and what you continue to do. So my question is, in the Library of Congress, once all of these stories are gathered, is it something that other women veterans can go to and listen to these stories? Are they going to release them? How, I mean, how is that going to work? Yes, we're definitely in talks of that. But they, any story that you share, that you send to the Library of Congress, it is preserved. Um, So that, say, for instance, a year from now, I'm wanting to do a research project on women veterans who transitioned in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. And Kat, here I am having this conversation with you. One of the keywords, one of the subject terms is 2000. If I type that into their search browser, you would pop, right? So we're looking for a way to create those subject key terms yes. um, and even themes so that the women veterans that are being interviewed are easily identifiable. Mm. Um, currently right now of the a hundred and almost 20,000 collections at the library of Congress um, on veterans, roughly six to 7% are of women. We're like a force to be reckoned with. I mean, if we were to ever stand up in force, no one could deny us. No one could deny us. 
And it's time, right? It's It's it's, well past time. It's well past time. Yes. You know, you have, you know, you, you think about, I was reading a story just yesterday on Harriet Tubman, right? Like we've been leading the charge in service forever. And it's time for us to have a significant place in history, her story, whatever you want to call, call it, it. <laughs> have that space because it's important because the demographics and the way that the military is comprised now does not look the way it did 50 years ago. No. Right. The diversity is, is just, just big. But even military. thinking back years and years ago when women were dressing and acting like men yeah. just to pass and be a part yeah. of the military and help in some form or fashion, you know, that's a calling. I'm just going to say that's, that's a calling. I want to revert a little bit back to helping women get into the civilian sector. What is the most common denominator that you see in getting women or organizations, civilian organizations to help women veterans for them to be a part of their organization? Is there a common denominator or is it across, you know, not across the board? Is it more depending on individual, the individual person? Or do you see one common theme across the board in getting these women hired for organizations? It's one thing to hire women um, in organizations, Kat. It's another thing to retain them, right? Right. Ensuring that they have the proper supports embedded in the organization to support them and to allow them to thrive, right? And when I think about thriving, I mean, on a holistic level, yes. you have someone veterans that are serving as caregivers that are needing to be in the workforce. You have some women veterans that are single parents. You have some women veterans that have their own physical and invisible wounds that yes. you can and cannot see. And I think it takes, you know, our, our civilian sector organizations to start understanding that the programs and the policies that they have designed have been designed with the male veteran in mind, yes. right? Not really taking into account that there are challenges that women face that maybe their male veteran didn't face. There are discriminations that women face that the male veteran didn't face. Right. And so creating more of these robust, culturally competent or culturally humble programs that bring women veterans to the table where they're having, you know, peer support, right? Building that camaraderie that we, that we survived, that we lived on in the military is big. Starting at an organization and saying, hey, hey, whatever term you want to use it, this is your battle buddy that's going to be with you for the next three months, right? right. To do a six month check-in, but just to ensure that you're being acclimated into the civilian workforce, but also ensuring that whatever supports that you're needing that we can help to provide, we're providing them to you. And it's not about giving um, um, special treatment to, it's really about if we're stressing the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion lens, let's really do the doggone thing. And let's look at women veterans that are normally at a younger age entering into the civilian workforce than their male counterpart. And let's look at how can we sustain um, sustain them and, and, and 
really make exceptional leaders out of them, allowing them to bring that leadership that they that they had in the military to the civilian workforce and and grow. It almost sounds like there needs to be a veteran mentor in some of these organizations. You know how there's a mentor for when you transition and someone's has been there, done that. Having that kind of, you know, someone's having a hard time that they can go to this mentor and they, and they understand because they are a veteran. You know what I mean? They get yeah. And having a pool, right? Yes. Having all of them, not just one. Not just one. Let's have, have an office. Let's have an affinity <laughs> group, right? right? That's right. what we call for an infinite affinity group where you have a diverse pool of veterans that have been in an organization for a you know a, a, desi- a designated amount of time that um can help shape and help bring them bring that woman veteran in and learn the ropes and and just. You know, transition is a, I, there are moments, Kat, where I still feel like I'm transitioning. I'm oh, me too. Story. I told people, right? I I got out over, it'll be 22 years this year. I still at some points feel like I'm transitioning. I think it's it's this, it, it changes over time. But as things change, you change and you feel like you're still, I don't like the word transition. I, I call it morphing. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you're trying to always find out where you fit in. I find sometimes that people ask these questions because you almost have to have this sense of patience. Because even now people say, oh, you're in the Air Force. Did you fly? And I tell them I I wasn't that important. That's that's basically what I say to them. And they're like, well, yeah, you were important. I said, thank you. But there were other jobs other than flying a plane. And so I kind of explain it to them like that. And I think I almost wish that they would ask those questions because sometimes they, they say, well, I don't know what to ask. I'm like, okay, so what, which, you know, what kind of adventure would you like to? I go on a safari. Okay, fine. What would you ask somebody who's been on a safari and you've never been, so you have nothing to compare it to? What kind of questions would you ask? And they start rolling these questions. I go, that's what you ask a veteran. There you go. What did you serve? When did you serve? What branch did you serve? Where did you go? go? Did you like it? You know, stuff like that. Veterans love talking about their service, but they're just not going to just come out with it. They're not. Because they're not, not. a lot of people are like, oh, you serve? Oh, okay, whatever. And then they keep moving. You're like, uh, <laughs> what do I say now? <laughs> Thank you for your service. And it's just like, okay, that's awkward. for what right because you really you really yeah I hate that term anyone listening to this I hate that term please please if you're going to say anything thank a veteran for wearing the uniform because only one percent of the population does that means so much it means so much when someone says that so I'm on a campaign to get rid of But, that's you know, that's it's, just it's, me. <laughs> and it's the easiest thing for people to say, right? Because mm-hmm. when you think about that one to two percent that served, um, you know, it's a very small percentage. Very of small. Our country, right? So oftentimes you don't know what to ask. You don't know what to say. Um, and I and 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 with that comes 
starting to educate um, people younger and younger, right? Like our kids know that, you know, our middle daughter, her birthday is on Veterans Day, right? So every Veterans Day we go out, it's up to her. You know, everyone has on a hat, everyone has on some some Something. type of yes. that shows that they're not everyone. A lot of people have on something that designates themselves as a veteran. So she gets the opportunity to pick, pick a table, right? Pick a table that we're going to pay it for, right? So she, uh, she has the understanding. And if that veteran has on a hat or has on a shirt, you know, my husband and I will look and, oh, it's Vietnam. We'll talk to her about Vietnam. We'll talk to her about when Vietnam vets came home, they weren't welcome, right? Yes. We're instilling those things in her so that she has an understanding of why she's giving thanks, why it's important to, um, why it's important to to learn about your history and your freedoms, and 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 who helped ensure that you stay free. Um, that that's that's big, and not just seeing a, a a service member in uniform and thinking that you know all you have to say is thanks for your service and. Right. It's very dismissive. I think you, we have to respect those that came before us and, and keep it, and keep it moving. I I was on a plane once and one of the flight attendants was in the military Mm -hmm. and he got on the, I don't know, intercom, whatever it's called. And he said, are there any veterans in the audio or in the you know, passenger um, and in the passenger field. And so I got up and I started, and, I was, and I'm thinking, oh, I get to go first class, right? And I got up and something <laughs> made me turn around. And this older, much older gentleman, he had, he had the Vietnam hat on, got up and he was about to sit down. And I said, no, sir, you take it. Why? It doesn't take much to show that respect. It doesn't take anything at all. And you hear all of these, you know, you hear these stories, but they're, there's, you know, between all the static that's out there, you hear it, you know, little things. So I pay attention to those little things because it still, it tells me that people are out there who, who want to honor veterans and those that came before us. And, you know, it, it warms my heart you know, when I hear that, when I see it, I want to do it. I want to be out there and, and doing something. And as I get older, I'm just going to follow through on it. I've been doing a lot of things that I said I was going to do years ago. And now I'm like, you know what? Now it's time to do this. So Quinn, how can we as veterans and especially women veterans, how can we help you achieve that goal where no woman veteran is left behind in any way, shape or form? In its simplest form, Kat, anyone can can do an interview, right? 30 minutes, 30 minutes, send your transcripts, send your send your recording, ask that woman veteran for a picture or two of themselves and send it to the Library of Congress. Anyone can do that on their own. Um, thinking about a larger effort, shameless plug, uh, <laughs> March 1st, we will have one of two um, webinars focusing on the voices of women veterans. Um, and this first one is a multi-generational perspective where we're going to have from Vietnam 
to post 9-11 women veterans share their story. Have your audience join us, right? And then the second one, we're still we're still carving it out, but it's 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 having a more clear focus on how to do just that. So just the question that you asked, how do we join in the effort in telling and getting these stories told? Um, that's what the second series that the second webinar is going to be about. And Kat, it's just what you're doing. It's, it's opening up that space to say, come on, sis, let's chat, right? Yes. Let's chat. We don't have to make it just strictly professional. I want to get to know you because when you raised your right hand, there was a, there was something in your DNA that called you to service. Yes. There's something in your DNA that wants to continue to serve because nine out of 10 times we get out of these uniforms and we think, Oh, I'm done with that. And we're on to the next thing mm-hmm. where we're still serving. Yes. Capacity, it's still right? part of it. It's, it's still, still part of it. Part of us, right? Like it is, it is so entrenched in our DNA to continue serving. I took my uniform off and I said, I'm done. And we're talking about, 21 years I've been in this work and I couldn't see myself doing anything different, but in this leg of the journey, you know, I am so dedicated in ensuring that our legacies are preserved because if we don't tell our stories, no one else is going to, no one else is going to, if we don't champion and say how important it is for our women in the past and present to not be invisible, our future sisters are going to be invisible. I had um, our Vietnam veteran that's going to be on the March 1st um, webinar. She, she sent me a message and she said, hey, Quinn, can I invite my other women veterans from Vietnam? Can, can I invite them? And I'm like, heck yeah. Excuse me. Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> here's what that did to me, right? I felt that with every part of my being because there was about 8,000 of them. Mm. We don't always hear about them and their role that they played while serving. And it's just like, let's hear about them too. Let's hear about it all so that we have a better understanding as to what we can continue to do, what perspectives have looked like over the years and 20 years from now, what do we want our future to be? Absolutely. We was talking about the dash, right? Yeah. You know, and and being someone who's not really afraid to talk about death because of my death work, Mm -hmm. my dash is ensuring that women who have served and just, individuals who have served, period, their stories are not forgotten in time, period. Let's keep making history. Let's keep making her story and let's learn and let's amplify our voices as long as we can, as long as we can. I want my daughters to be able to say, you know, I'm going to join the, I can join the military and I can be proud of my service because of my mom and and her friends and her other sisters in arms that weren't afraid to call a thing a thing and let and advocate for such a level of social change that we'd never be forgotten or never be invisible again. 
Absolutely. I want to do a roundtable discussion um, of women who were in the Vietnam era and just hear <laughs> their stories, because I think it would just be fascinating. But <sighs> Quinn, how can people contact you if they want to be a part of this Library of Congress, if they want to help you record these women? How, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, you can definitely go to intheirhonor.info. That's my website. And you can fill out an information um, form there, or you can reach me directly at my email address, which is uh, qgsalazar at gmail.com. And Kat, I'm going to assume that's going to be in your show notes. Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. All right. All right. I'm a professional. I'm like, oh, geez, do I need to do the military alphabet and spell that out? (laughs) Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta. (laughs) I have to go through. I'm like, wait, what is that? Oh, yeah, Q, Quebec. I got it. Well, Quinn, this has been such a pleasure having you on. And if anyone out there is listening and want to help, I will definitely have Quinn's information in the show notes. I think that this endeavor is so important for us as women veterans and for those of us that come after us and our daughters, our granddaughters, our great granddaughters, because they need to know about this, about how freaking fabulous their grandmothers, great grandmothers, great great grandmothers were and are. Just, just saying. Um, so, Quinn, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, I was so happy when you said yes. I was like, yes, because we were introduced from um, a mutual friend of ours, and it's it was just one of those things. We just um, we just hit it off right right in the beginning. So. As usual, you guys, I'm going to say um, stay safe, take care of each other until next time. But I'm also going to add it's never too late to start your impossible. I'm Kat Corchado, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.